You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. And what's great about Maxine's initiative is we want, as an art gallery, to become a public space for conversation in our community around important issues in the art world. And Maxine has contributed wonderfully to that goal. Uh, today, we're pleased to welcome Howard and Cindy Rachowski, uh, true heroes of ours in the art world for a few reasons. Uh, not just that, the, and they're from Dallas, so many of you will have picked all of this up. Uh, they're great collectors, uh, they're great city builders, uh, they're great believers in the notion of what a community can do uh, to attract people to the community, to give a sense of creativity in that community, and they put it all together. Starting as collectors, starting as philanthropists, starting as community builders, as believers in their city, they, with two other couples, uh, the Hoffmans and the Roses, came together to announce an extraordinary gift a number of years ago, which was that three couples would come together, commit their collections to the public institution, the Dallas Museum of Art, and thereby say that their community not only could set an example by collecting through community, but also could put Dallas into an international conversation in the art world because three was better than one. And that idea of creating a collectivity to make a space for art, for collecting, for philanthropy is very unusual. And the Rachowskis are at the center of that. So for me, they're like gods because they are great collectors, they have great judgment, and they've done something extraordinary in their community that simply stated didn't exist before they and the other two couples came together. So we wanted to bring them to Toronto uh, because, of course, we want you all to become part of something like that in Toronto. Uh, we want to bring them to Toronto because the notion of how you create community through the act of collecting is very interesting to us. And so we've asked them to share their thoughts with us. I understand that I only have to ask one question and then stop and two hours later we'll be fine. But I do actually have a number of questions I'm gonna sort of lead them through. And Howard and Cindy have selected a number of images which I think are gonna scroll most yeah. of the time, right? Um, and just to be clear, at the end, as long as I keep track of the time, uh, we'll have a moment uh, for questions from you. So I'm going to start by asking you, where did it all start? As collectors, where did your urge to do something special through the world of art, where did that begin? Well, first, thank you for having us. We're honored and flattered to uh, be here to share our meager observations with you, or at least our experiences uh, in the art world. Uh, for me, you know, the whole art experience, uh, not having any background, either academically or, quite frankly, much interest, uh, until I was well into my late 20s, um, w w was somewhat interesting. And in, in, in the first art dealer whom I met, randomly in Dallas, Texas, uh, a man named Ralph Kond, uh, in the late 70s, introduced me to contemporary art and his uh, passion, enthusiasm, uh, and energy 
sort of gave me an outlet, other than my career and my business, to sort of explore other aspects of things that were interesting to me. Cindy had had experience because she took art history in school. She really had a much more refined and, and, and greater sense of what was going on in art across a broad range that, than I did. And I started, I suspect, like many people who collect, uh, with uh, buying works from Ralph that were uh, uh, large edition, sort of modern master prints, you know, and the criteria was good wall power and cheap. Uh, um, and Ralph really was, a, was an inspiration to me for, for many years. Collecting evolved by buying one painting at a time. I didn't go in and buy 10, 15 works of art. It wasn't at that moment in time. It hadn't turned into the disease that it subsequently did. Uh, but just a few of the examples, of, and as I reflected on the opportunity to speak here today, I looked at some of the first works of art. The work up right now by Paul Jenkins was actually the first significant work I, I bought in the late 70s, visited the artist studio, and in 1978 bought this painting for $12,000, and that was an outrageous sum at the time. But I really bought a little at a time, and the history of the collection really is uh, sort of pre and post the Meyer House. That sort of became the, the, uh, the point in time when I was not just accumulating things in a random walk through the world, but was really uh, engaged in art in a, in a much more profound right, so way. So pause for a moment and just say what the Meyer House is. In 1984, I uh, had a conversation with Richard Meyer, who had just completed the, uh, the High Museum in Atlanta. Uh, and I had seen that building uh, and fell in love with it. And I contacted him and asked him, uh, did he do houses? Of course, he had done houses, and I wasn't wise enough to know that. Uh, and he said, yes, I do houses uh, from time to time. I don't do many, uh, but I find that's a great laboratory to do, uh, to do projects. And uh, so I asked him, would you consider doing something? And I said, and he said, of course, I'd be happy to visit with you about it. In the interim, from the time of our first conversation to our visit in person, he got the biggest private commission in history, the Getty Museum. So I assumed that I would not exactly be very high on his his priority list. Uh, surprisingly, he was engaged, so I can't jump on it right away. Uh, but um, I do like doing houses. They're laboratories for creativity. They're opportunities to explore something in small scale that could ultimately be translated into larger scale. Long story short, uh, after a decade of trying to figure out how I was going to pay for it, uh, the house was completed in 1996, and uh, I officially moved in then. And there are some images that you might be seeing right now of, uh, of the Richard Meyer house. Okay, but, okay, so they have this great idea to get in touch with Richard Meyer. They say, will you build a house? They build a house. But then you did the most extraordinary thing. You actually gifted it to the Dallas Museum of Art. So finish that thought about how you went from building something extraordinary, and then we're gonna come back to the collection, but just say something about where that commitment came from. Well, that was actually subsequent to uh, our, our really our, our first engagement. Really, the first relationship with 
the Dallas Museum of Art of any significant degree came from me in 1994, prior to the house being completed. And that's when our dear friend, not a dear friend at the time, but now our best friend, Dee Dee Rose, came to me and said, wouldn't you like to contribute to the capital campaign, the building campaign? So we got to do the obligatory hard hat tour. I had no significant relationship with the Dallas Museum at that point in time. I had actually was on the board of the Dallas Symphony and had been for four years, and that's where, where, where my financial and, and personal commitments were. Uh, but Didi asked, and Didi's a very persuasive lady, hard to say no to. And obviously I was already interested in art. The house was underway. There was going to be an ongoing engagement, but that was the, that was the moment at which the Dallas Museum became a significant uh, part uh, of my life. And ultimately, a couple of years later, Cindy's uh, as well. That was really the beginning. Uh, the, the gifting of, of, of the house was, did not happen until, you know, as a, as a promised gift until some years later. And it was part of this gift that, and Cindy can probably tell the story better about how that whole gift came to pass. That might be. So t say a little bit, Cindy, and also say why you think I'm going to say it this way, and it's going to sound a little, like, why does a museum want a house? <laughs> well, honestly, we're not quite sure they do. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's an interesting question, and it's one we wrestle with every year when we sort of redo our documents on this gift, because, you know, maybe it's the woman in me, I'm thinking, do they really realize what it takes to keep up this place? Do they really want, you know, do they really want it? And I guess it, and it's a discussion that we've had. We've been through three directors since the gift. And, we, and it's a conversation we've had with each of the three directors. And I, I think what will ultimately happen is, you know, the gift is based on the second to die, hoping that's me. Um, and <laughs> at that time, you know, the board of directors will determine whether they think that it's something they're really wanting to tackle or if it's something that they think they want to sell and take the proceeds and use as an endowment for the museum. When you give a gift, it's a gift. We didn't put any strings on this house. Um, but where the gift came from, you know, we're getting credit sitting up here for the gift, but, but it wasn't our idea. We had this tradition as a, as a couple with Robert and Marguerite Hoffman, Robert has uh, since passed away of going to Napa Valley to celebrate New Year's Eve. It was just something we always did and it was fun. And they had agreed to chair a capital campaign for the museum, the biggest one in its history to date and still to date. And you know, we're having a lot of fun sitting by the fire and Robert and Marguerite said, what would you think about giving your collection to the museum at your death as a way of encouraging fundraising for the capital campaign. So we would say to the community, if we raise X, we'll give our collection. And it was funny because it was never had been a conversation we'd had as a couple ever. Didn't even think about the future in that way. And we didn't even say, well, could we get back with you tomorrow after the wine has worn off or <laughs> can we, you know. We just looked at each other and said, sure. And we never looked back and I, find that extraordinary that we never even had a conversation together. It just was the right thing to do. And maybe it was a answer that needed to be answered and they did it for us. So then she said, and Marguerite said, well, why don't we ask Dee Dee and Rusty Rose? And she did, and they said yes, and that's really how it started. And later, maybe the next day, Howard said, well, 
why don't I give the house too? Trust me. I mean, look at this thing. Who want, nobody <laughs> wants that. <laughs> I mean, it's not like we can put it on the market and sell it. So it made, you know, it made perfect sense. And, um, and so the point of it originally was to raise money for the capital campaign. And then it made sense for the reason to be to encourage others. And we have someone in the audience, a dear, dear friend of ours from Dallas, Sharon, and Michael Young, Michael's not here, but Michael is one of you all. He's a Toronto born and raised here. And they were the first people to step up and say, we want to do the same thing. You know, we spend a lot of time trying to encourage others to do also. But thank you, Sharon and Michael, for, for doing what we hoped would happen. But go back to um, the moment where you said yes so quickly around a fireside. And let's assume mm -hmm. that you didn't have much wine. There was something. I can't. There was that. there was something in that intuition that felt right. What felt right about that saying yes? We cared so desperately about our community first. We cared desperately about our music second. And it would never dawn on us to give it to our children. That is the one conversation we had had. Is about you know we don't necessarily believe in that that you leave everything to your to your children. And they knew that, and we knew that, but we'd never had the discussion about the art. Um, one of the things that we had done, though, was we had given what is called a partial gift. The tax laws in the states at this time in 2001 were very different. And I'll show you a few slides of, of what these actual pieces were. And honestly, it was a way to encourage others to give a partial gift. It also <laughs> was a tax reason. Um, that law has now changed. Howard can speak a little bit broader to that conversation. But these were things that we gifted a partial percentage to the museum and would give the rest of the percentage at our death. Correct. Do you want to speak a little bit more about the tax laws? Not that they necessarily would relate well, to the, you the, all. They but, changed in the interim. Right. At the time, a fractional gift was a way of being generous to an institution and at the same time retain enough ownership so that you could continue to exhibit the works and because that was really critical to me and quite frankly because it was an attempt to try to jumpstart others into making gifts uh, to the museum. So this really occurred in 2001 prior to the big gift. But, so we already had a, an, a, an experience with Mm -hmm. really becoming one-on-one one one with the museum and being part of the museum. Yeah, but not as guide. a full collection. So let me just pause. I'm not going to go on for long. We don't have partial gifts in Canada. We, as an institution, have actually tried to do this because it's really an inspired idea. But what Howard and Cindy are referring to in the last few years, it's been pulled back, even in the United States. But what it does is allows a collector to give, as Howard said, the work but also have a legal right to show it. And that's one of the things that we sometimes in Canada face, and which why we want the partial gift, is that people want to give, but they can't bear the idea that it's never going to be on their walls. So if we had such a mechanism, and you find it Well, here's helpful. an interesting story, just as yesterday, because this is something we continue to encourage young collectors and collectors to do that, that don't have any idea of giving their whole collection, but they could do this. Driving in the car on the way to the airport to come here, Yesterday, a collector in Dallas called Howard for advice on this. It's something that he wanted to do. Um, and talk to me about really what are the legal ramifications? What are the tax ramifications? How do I really go about doing it? 
so it's it's working and it's happening and it, it just you know even yesterday so the so idea is still there I want to ask something about becoming a public figure but before I do you said that the way that Robert and Marguerite raised it with you was that if you've promised your collection we could say it will come to us if we succeed in raising the money did it succeed and did that act as the lever to raise the money for the campaign in the community it did we ne we would never have not done it anyway um, I think we were a few million shy but nobody really knew that and we were um, happy to go ahead and say yes we did it thank you to the community and yeah, here it is. You declare victory and move on. Yeah. <laughs> so talk a little bit about the transition because you're sitting around in your small little white house and you're enjoying <laughs> your collection and you're doing it relatively quietly. Meaning to say you have relationships internationally but you are collectors in the art world. And then you make this public declaration. You do become public figures. Well, number I'm, one, does it change your collecting? And number two, mm -hmm. does it change your relationship to the marketplace? Well, I'll speak just for one minute about that because it's interesting because, you know, we didn't live in the house for very long because very quickly when it opened, it became a very public space. People wanted to use it for a variety of things. We said, yes, you can use it if it's for a fundraiser to a nonprofit. We hoped that it was something that we actually cared about, but it was fine. It raised so much money for so many institutions that we said, okay, clearly this place has a bigger purpose than for us to live in it. So we packed up, we moved, and we, we stayed away for 15 years. And we let that house be a place to show art. We let it be a place for other organizations to raise money. And we let it mainly be a place for education as a way to encourage others to teach others there's no arts in the schools in the state of texas anymore in the public schools we used it as a place for yellow school buses to come and try to teach them something about contemporary art and quite frankly to teach everybody about contemporary art we didn't expect them to like it we knew they got in their car and said oh my god can you believe what we just saw <laughs> we know that happened we hear it we know but you know we 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 hoped that maybe they went on vacation sometime in their life and they went to a museum and they saw crazy things like we own and they said oh okay I, I get it now we that's what we hoped so say something about becoming a public figure Howard because you you both have become more public than you certainly were before has it changed the way you collect has it changed your relationship in the marketplace well it's I think the, the to me the most you know a subtle but 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 what's become more apparent to me over over the years since we've done this is suddenly as opposed to being the curator uh, of a private collection which means you go out and you know respond to every whim or or whatever strikes mm -hmm. your fancy i began to, you know subconsciously and maybe now consciously to think about all right this has got your name on it this is going to be in the public domain you better get on, get serious about what you're doing here and the collection needs to evolve an identity it has to say something it has to be a, a collection that really can be not only additive uh, to your own curiosity but it has to be additive to the museum's collection so I really did a lot of work thinking about what the museum's collection looked like has it changed your relationship with the marketplace or it's you just do your thing 
think on some level it has had an effect because we are now known as collectors of certain types of work, certain things. We are offered a lot of material that tends to be simpatico to that. So I think we do, uh, in a sense, get a little bit of a first offer on some things because we do buy some things that are not necessarily so market driven. They're much more, you know, a right For example. <laughs> well, th there you go. Um, Perfect timing. At, I'm just going to give you a fair warning that at some point I'm going to want you to find one image that you love and just tell us why you love it. Do you want to do that now or do you want to think about it in the course of scrolling? I, do, I think we There's want a to funny know. story about this one, this Mark Quinn bloodhead. One of the, one of the impetus for moving out of the house was we had an 11-year-old slumber party. And that was in the day of boom boxes. And if you can see the one on your right, uh, that's a refrigerated unit. And so someone unplugged it to plug in their boom box. And when we woke up to say time to get up and out of here, Bloodhead was no more. <laughs> Let so, me say that this is a work for those that probably don't know Mark's work. Mark Quinn conceived of this body of work that he was going to make every five years of his own image. And he took a mold of his image and then he literally had his blood drawn every month and uh, used that to put in the mold and it was the, the consummate piece about one's identity. It's your own blood frozen. <coughs> of course, he created this exotic refrigeration unit. Uh, and this was Mark, this, this was called, and all of these were entitled, entitled Self. Uh, and this is self two from I think ninety seven. Is that right? Ninety eight. Ninety eight. Um, and so uh, Mark was a little chubbier then. He's sort of slimmed down now. So so Mark number five, self five, is a lot uh, different. But he tends to do this every year. And, and one of the directions of the collection is has has always centered around these sort of representational works that deal with identity and who we are. And I think nothing more specifically deals with who we are than our very essence of what, of what we're made of. So I'm going to keep pushing a little, and this isn't in the script, so okay. forgive me, but do you, would you generalize? Do you collect with your heart or your mm -hmm. hand? Uh, a little of both, yeah. but I would say it's, it, it's uh, for me, again, as, as things have evolved, it's become much more an intellectual pursuit yeah. as opposed to just a, a visceral thing, because quite frankly, because I'm an addict, and because when we go, we don't go on vacations unless there's art involved. So poor Cindy doesn't get to go on beach trips. She has to go, unless it's Miami Basel. She has to go to these places where it's cold and nasty and rainy and there's an art fair or an art an event or a, an exhibition. And so this is, our lives revolve around this. We see things we like, we make notes on, we're all, we're acquisitive by nature. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think because of obviously finite resources and the uh, and, and this notion of really refining and developing a collection, uh, a lot of it is becoming intellectual. It's becoming cerebral. It's becoming you have these and this and this. You really could use this because it makes sense if you're lucky enough to find something that really resonates in that regard. And it's also a beautiful object that that touches you, you know, in the gut. That's uh, all the better. And if it's important to the museum. Okay, so important to the museum. So I want to make a statement and then ask a question. Also not quite on the list. Okay, so 
You have to know that Howard and Cindy's collection would be coveted by any museum in the world. Any museum would want their collection. So let's take that as a proposition that you could have arranged to gift your collection or somehow see it anywhere. Sure, of course. You wanted it to be in Dallas. Just tell us something about what Dallas means to you. Why was that important? Well, I think you know what I said before was you know number one, the reason for the gift was because we care so desperately about our community. Howard is born and raised there. He's never lived outside of the zip code we live in today, except when he went to college, which speaks volumes about him. And, <laughs> and, um, and I have lived in Dallas since I was nine years old, and that was so long ago that um, I can consider myself comfortably a Dallasite. It wouldn't ever have been an option. Would never have, we wouldn't ever even consider it. But you, did you do, is your benefaction in part because you want Dallas to yes, be different? absolutely. And so you said people leave the Meyer house and maybe, just maybe, they're going to lead to another experience. Do you have any sense that your initiative has started to change the dialogue for contemporary art in Dallas? In Dallas, you know, I think there's a couple of reasons that I think it has changed. You know, when the house opened, there really wasn't other collectors in town that were opening their homes you know, to the public to do a fundraiser or, you know, maybe they did a museum dinner because an artist was in town. But in terms of really opening up their place, that really hadn't happened until the Richard Meyer house was, was complete. The landscape in Dallas today is quite different. There are, Marguerite Hoffman has a, a separate building on her property now called B2, which is strictly to show her collection. Dee Dee Rose has bought a pump station, an old pump station next door to her house, which is an entertaining and art space. There are several young, really young, emerging collectors in Dallas that now have bought buildings and now have spaces to show art. So now it's, it's quite a trend. Um, this, this notion of opening your home and opening a place to be able to show art and to be able to, you know, for the community to use as a, as a place and a space. So you think, so evidently you're saying there has been sort of a oh, sense that the... Unbelievably so, yeah. Okay, yeah. so we but lost... But still ways to go. Still ways okay, to we're go. Gonna, we're going to come back to that. We lost the thread a bit, Howard, because you said uh, before the Meyer House, and then I got you onto what was the Meyer House, but you were talking about the Meyer House being a moment when the collection yes. shifted. So take us back to what it was before the Meyer House, once you thought about that space, how the collection itself started to change? Well, I think we showed some images before and it reflected a little bit about the evolution of the taste that was developed in, in, a, in a rather classical taste uh, engendered by Ralph Kahn. Then, uh, uh, in the course of events, I met a gallerist in New York who turned out to be the, the best friend of the wife of a man I did business with. It's one of these six degrees of separation. She happened to run Nodler Gallery, so I bought artwork from Nodler's stable. So for the first 10 or 15 years of collecting, it was really a rather narrow but random approach. With the, with the advent of the house and at the encouragement uh, of the lady that helped with the public relations on the house, because I was very clear about wanting it to be uh, if it was going to be published, to be published in a scholarly way, not as a, uh, you know, a folly or a self-indulgent kind of project. 
uh, her name was Andrea Schwann, and, and, and she knew a, a gentleman named Alan Schwartzman. Alan Schwartzman was a curator, a writer, uh, had been a gallerist, and uh, she had met him and, and, and knew me and introduced us, and that really changed the course of the collection in a dramatic way. I, Alan is today regarded as one of the most significant art advisors in our little contemporary art world. Uh, but he really helped me understand the dynamics of what we wanted the collection to begin to, to be. And we, we started working together. I was his first and only client. Uh, and this is in 1997. Uh, and, you know, we, we spent six or eight months not buying anything, just looking, thinking, talking. He looked at the collection the way it was and then created a proposal about how we could evolve the collection. And essentially, it, it fell along two broad brush strokes that, that define almost all art, but at least it gives it some compartmentalization that makes sense. One being something that was that, that resonated by virtue of the house, i.e. a, a minim, minimal aesthetic that comes out of the Bauhaus from the early 20s, really. It was really part of a an aesthetic that resonated for me clearly I wouldn't be doing that kind of a building and and then secondly as we spoke when talking about the bloodhead the uh, the issues dealing around identity this sort of postmodern notion of who the hell we are and what does the world look like and, and almost all the representational work has some element of that in it and so working along those broad categories we began to fill in and began to evolve the collection that subsequently led to uh, post-war European, I call it minimalism, uh, post-war Italian art that had resonated in that regard. In the last few years, uh, we've gone back and revisited post-war Japanese art because it was a very interesting parallel between the post-war Italian movement and post-war Japanese movement. These were areas totally unexplored in the States 15 years ago. And the Japanese, it wasn't until a show about three years ago that began to give some, some texture to really interesting work that was being made many years ago. So a lot of what we've done is gone back and filled in and tried to create a collection that really resonates around art in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And that hasn't been done. So um, chapters, early collection, Meyer House, different focus, commitment to Dallas, Museum of Art, and now recently a public space that you've opened to show your collection. So not just the Meyer House, not just generous loans to international exhibitions, but a desire to create your own space to show your collection. Where did that come from and how are you feeling about it? Uh, practically speaking, it came from the fact that we have 800 works of art in the collection when you can't put them all up at one time and where. And because you're an acquisitive fool, you've got to get this stuff on the walls or store it somewhere. And we've been paying a fortune to store significant parts of the collection. So somehow I rationalized that there had to be an economic way of, uh, of doing something. And along with a friend in Dallas who was a collector and who uh, uh, actually both of a little bit of art and a lot about houses, um, but had a little time on his hand and but hands and loved doing this, said, I'll go 50-50 with you on doing a warehouse. And so we started looking around and we found a building and we gutted a building and it's one of those little things, when you buy the house that you're going to not, not remodel, you're just going to repaint, 
the next thing you know, you've rebuilt the house. Well, that's exactly what we did with the warehouse. We turned it into, you know, put new floors and skylights and all this stuff. So the next thing you know, you've got, you know, your own little faux kunst hall. So we have a wonderful space in Dallas with 17,000 feet of exhibition space, 8,000 feet of storage, the whole art management operation is moved out there. Okay, hold on just a second. For those of you who are trying to visualize 17,000 square feet, take the Zacks, which is where Coville is or where the Picasso exhibition is, and add 70%. So it's almost double the size of the Zacks. These are images that are These are now. images from the warehouse. From the warehouse. Uh, and it's really, you know, it's a work in progress because in all candor, we sort of started this and, and this gentleman, my partner in this project, Vernon Faulkner, and I said, we're not sure where it's going. We're go we want to be able to do interesting things. We want to evolve the dialogue and conversation around and about art uh, of our time. Um, but we don't, we don't have specific and definitive plans yet. We want to expand our education program but we may want to evolve it into scholar in residence. We really tackle issues of contemporary art that, that are not being tackled uh, generally in other places. So it's become a whole new, new opportunity. And we, part of the reason it, it's had some degree of success is we were also able to sublet part of the building to an art handling firm. So we did not, so we did not have to, all we have to do is knock on the door to have people come over and move a couple of paintings around. So it gives us an opportunity to, to really have a, have a new clean you know, canvas to, uh, to explore different ideas. So say something about what you've learned from it. So now you're, pl you're playing or moving works of art in a space which is different than collecting or maybe even putting them up in your home. You're actually working in a space. What have you learned from it and what are you excited by? Well, I'm excited about the opportunities now, curatorially, to expand on these these ideas. We sort of put together an exhibition uh, last year where we really were comp you know, compare and contrast post-war art in Italy and post-war art in Japan. And this, some of these slides sort of reflect that installation. Um, and we're doing a publication on it. We've never done a, a publication. So we will have, in February, we, we will have a book out that, that documented this because every time a lot of people who did happen to come to Dallas to see it, who were serious-minded people in the art world, said, this, this is fresh information. This is new stuff. You won't be able to do this every time you do a presentation, but this is something that an audience globally should see, and particularly an audience in the States should see. So uh, it, it's been incredibly rewarding, and it's sort of been left us the opportunity to expand on what we're doing. I could, can't even tell you, other than I know the next installation will go in in February, uh, and is going to be titled Geometries, and it'll explore not only post-war Asia and post-war uh, Europe, it'll explore post-war Latin America and post-war North America. So we'll have a whole, in February, a different exhibition. And interestingly enough, uh, we are going to be borrowing works from other collectors. So we are going to be borrowing works from the Youngs, from the Roses, from the Hoffmans, perhaps from the Stoffels. We've, we've sent them a proposal, and from the Dallas Museum. Museum. So we're actually going to have uh, a, a really interesting um, opportunity. Of course, I have to also add that our current director, Max Anderson, is very keen on having the warehouse included under the umbrella of the Dallas Museum of Art as well. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Not quite there yet on that one. But. We don't know Max Anderson, but we think that probably <laughs> makes some sense with what we've heard about his personality. Yeah. Um, can you conjure up a moment where you acquired a work of art, not really sure about it, I don't know if you do that, brought it into your house, don't let me answer and lived with it, and really grew to love it. Like you started with doubt, and you ended up in love, somehow by being with it. Nothing jumps at me, I'm sure it's the case. Cindy actually has just the opposite effect. She says, no, but I'm with you. I probably can give you thousands okay. of those, but um, no. The, but there is one that um, that I did win on it, years ago. He bought um, a uh, uh, Richard he, Prince. He, 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 Howard okay. Howard bought a Richard Prince joke painting, yeah, and cool. he hung it. And I was in the gym on the treadmill, and I could see it. And the whole time I was on it, I stared at it, and I. I got off and I called him and I said, you cannot keep that, you cannot keep this painting. As funny as it is, it's so incredibly inappropriate. And if in fact, we're gonna stand for education and if we're going to encourage school groups to come and you live in a red state and you've got these mothers that are you know, on the tour with their kids, it's just gonna take one mother to see this painting and then all the good you've done is, is for naught because they will make it a case for, for this. Can you share the joke with us, or you're a little embarrassed to do so? But it was something a bit edgy about. No, it yes. really, yeah, yeah, it wasn't edgy. But it wasn't. It, it was it implied a racial slur. Yes, in, in a and big racial it, slur, a big know. racial slur. So and Richard Print does big paintings. It does a lot of work, but some of them have quite funny, although sometimes and inappropriate. Edgy. But inappropriate's okay. Right, and that's but part of the racially idea of the work. inappropriate. Right, but it's not okay yeah. to me and to what we were trying to do and what we were trying to stand for. And he agreed. I mean, it took a while, but he said, you know what, you're right. And, and we did sell it. Um, and, and it was the right thing to do. But So what's interesting about that is that's a great example of where an artist's idea, as brilliant as it is, mm -hmm. and as um, provocative as it might be in a public space, might be, loses that potential in a private space exactly. and so you know and maybe not even appropriate in a public space. I'm not sure it would have been appropriate I'm not sure that if you brought the director over and you showed him the work that he would say he would ever hang that right I just mm. you know I just don't think you would but you know look there's a lot of artists that I never really liked but I didn't really like them because I didn't really understand them and I think Franz Vest is one early on Bruce Nauman made me crazy um, but, you know, with, after living with them and after seeing more of the work, you know, I, I grew to really appreciate them and really understand them. And, and they're some of my, you know, favorite works now. There are some, though, that I will someday. Oh. There's one. So <laughs> that would be Sludge, for those of you that can't see very well. It's one um, of my favorites. I think it's so, you know, we used to have a running joke where, you know, I'm going to really go out and buy something really expensive because that is so ridiculous. But I don't really do that. But it was a family joke. So I'm going to ask one last question, and then I'm going to see whether uh, our audience wants to jump in. Um, what you've done is a wonderful act of generosity. It's a community changer. It gives other people energy to think in different ways. What was the surprise about doing what you've done, as you're continuing to do, that was even better than you imagined? 
Well, for me, it's people like you asking us to come and talk about something that we think is just so normal and just not as important as most people think it is, quite frankly, to me. And I'm going to say, we, a week doesn't go by that I'm wandering around in some obscure place in Dallas, because if I'm not at the warehouse, I'm usually wandering around, because I don't have a... One of the best reasons for the warehouse. You know, <laughs> give me somewhere to go. Give them somewhere <laughs> to go. It's every, from all walks of life, people somehow know who we are, um, and they stop and say thank you. That's really, y'all are really generous done something really good for the community and thank you and, and with no agenda nothing other than and random thank you nothing makes you feel better I think what we hope now that we realize what all the fuss is about is that other communities will do the same and I think that's why we're here and we're going to Minneapolis next month to do this to do the same kind of thing um, Lousy timing on weather, but know, good, good right? timing on ideas. Right, but uh, you know, I think that's that's what that's what our hope would be. They are so committed to that idea that they put special stuff in your water, so <laughs> that you're going to actually phone me up in the next week or so. Um, really questions funny. from you, <laughs> things that you wanted to ask. I've got one, two. We're going to start. Oh, okay. She's the boss. We'll get to you. <laughs> Okay, I want to say thank you too to start out and I'm going to ask a question about sustainability and the reason I'm asking it is because I was in Calgary last month and a couple have had a building constructed on 9th Avenue. The bottom floor is rented out to art related businesses and the income from the rent makes the gallery free for everyone to go and see that's on the second and third floor. And it means that the staff that they have in the gallery do not have to spend any time fundraising. I'm thinking about your warehouse and all that you've done and how wonderful it is. Have you thought about what happens to sustain it after you are no longer alive? A very fair and, and, uh, and good question, and uh, in all candor, we haven't. Well, uh, we don't charge anything. We would never, never do that, and and we get. It's not done as a nonprofit. We basically pay the bills, no deductions. Uh, we have a great team working with us, but that's a very fair question. Vernon and I have a buy-sell agreement with each other. You know, when one of us goes. Um, and it's so new that we really haven't thought about, you know, the sustainability idea, except to the extent that in the back of my mind, the, the, the building ultimately makes the most sense as an adjunct, at least for the contemporary side of the Dallas Museum of Art. The office spaces, it's set up, it's got parking, uh, it's in an accessible area of town that's relatively easy for people to get to. Uh, it, uh, it, is, it is instinctively my idea that it would be a perfect part of the Dallas Museum, at which point the team would theoretically at least be part of the, uh, of the staff of the Dallas Museum. But that still would encumber the museum with having to raise more money to manage a separate facility. But for the house, though, we've, we will leave an endowment to, to run the house for a period of time. 
Are there other questions at the back? First of all, thank you so much for coming. Oh, thank you. And I can see why you're so happy, because your wonderful hobby is a reason for living. Mm -hmm. And secondly, you have such a vast perception of diversity in your collection. Now, because you have such a huge inventory, when you're about to make a decision on a piece, how do you know that that piece is not just a variation on a piece in the warehouse Well, you know, again, we have, we I think we know uh, the collection pretty thoroughly, and working with Alan, we're very careful to try to marshal our resources in in doing things, adding works that really do fit a niche to tell help tell that story. It may be a modest work, it may not be a big extravagant work. It may be one drawing, it may be one photograph, it may be one text-based work that refines that story and gives it a little a little nuance. I was in New York, uh, interestingly enough, last uh, before we came here. Uh, and I had a couple of hours after a meeting to do a quick gallery hop. And one of the galleries I went into had a series of drawings, or I wouldn't know, I'm not sure they're drawings. They're like photo manipulated off a copier done in the 90s by Sigmar Polka, a very well-known, important German artist. And the images of it relate very clearly to a painting that we own with another couple uh, from, an, from um, another period. And I thought briefly, in fact, I sent a, a, an email to Alan. I said, go take a look at this and let's see if, would this be truly additive to actually see this manipulated image done 12 years before the, the painting, would this be interesting to present? Would this enhance that story about the experimental nature of the way Sigmar Polka worked? So we haven't made a decision yet, but that's sort of the process that we go through. We have a question right there. Oh, we have a question at the back and then another one just halfway down here. <clears throat> I also want to thank you. Your influence, uh, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm Robert Bradshaw. And we've communicated several times. If I could see through the lights. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, uh, I've obviously been to your home and to your warehouse. And the inspiration the first time I went was we came home and my wife said, we have to buy the property next door, tear it down, build a house so we can show our art, which Matthew knows we've done. And, and so we're on our way on a much, much smaller scale than you folks. So I just wanted you to know that, first of all, you're that influence works its way here. One part of what you do in Dallas that truly I think is remarkable and, and I don't quite know how you manage it is this sort of arrangement of a few families, couples, whatever you want to call them, that put your resources together to buy significant pieces of art to manage the budget and for the benefit of Dallas. How did you manage to make that work? Is it a tax issue? Is it something different in the States that we can't do in Canada? We don't seem to have it's a money issue. put that together. Well, we don't, it's not that in Canada we have more money and we don't need to partner up to buy particular pieces of work, but they remained in the homes as I understand it, these works and you share them around and they, you have a schedule for them. Uh, how did that all come about and how can you make that work that help 
people that don't do that. Yeah, there was a, a Gerhard Richter painting that we coveted years ago, and we wanted it desperately, and we couldn't afford it. I mean, there was no way. And so we went to a couple of collectors and asked them, would you, would you want to go in on this with us? And then we went to the museum and we asked the museum, would you want to go in on this with us? The museum owned a, 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 a particular Richter that was not as good as what this would have done for the museum's collection as a whole. And so what they decided to do was they would sell that painting, that Richter, that money would go towards it. And we went to two other families, they went in on it. So there's four people that own this Richter together and we, we share it quarter of the time a year. And if, if we want it longer, that's fine. If they want it longer, that's fine. If it goes on loan and everybody agrees, I mean, if, if, if it's asked to go on loan and, and all four parties agree, it goes on loan. It, that really was the beginning. And, and now it's gotten to the point where, I mean, if you all look at auction prices or you just go into a gallery, I mean, if you want to enhance a collection like this, it's at a price that you can't really afford to do anymore. I mean, it's it's... It's just not possible. And so when there's something that we really feel is so important to the museum's collection and or so important to our collection, or Marguerite says this is so important to my collection, would some will you all want to go in on it with us? We do. We do. If we feel like it if we all agree that it's the right work and it would be an enhancement to either their collection or the museum's collection, we do it. And it's you know, we we try to do it with some people, some people still are uncomfortable with it. Um, for whatever reason, but... But the Dallas Museum of Art would have engaged with you on the basis of their assumption that in the end it would come to the of museum. Of course, sure. It is, and all of these are promise gifts. Yeah, they're right? all, yeah. These are all documented. They're not fractional. No, these are all documented gifts, yeah. promise gifts, so... If we do it with the museum, for right. sure. Yeah, of course. And we've done a lot of that with the museum. Because they can't afford to buy works either. Well, what you've done is truly awesome, but I wonder if we could dial down to a little bit of a humbler level. Um, what if you're at the stage where you collected randomly just things you enjoy, but you'd like to collect things that are eventually worthy of giving to an institution? How do you even go about that? It's very difficult now. Quite frankly, again, this is a conversation that you know, that, that I have with collectors and I have with, with friends, I have with art advisors. <coughs> there was a moment in time, and there's still some chance if you're, if you're willing to go look, but there was a moment in time where lots of the work that we bought in the collection for a relatively modest sum, a few thousand dollars, uh, uh, that ultimately developed into being works of great significance by, by art historical standards at least. I think you've got to, you dial down to what you think is reasonable. You make a judgment as to if, if you buy one work a year, if you buy two, if you, you don't have to amass so many, many things. But, but the only way you can do it now, sadly, is you really have to go gallery to gallery, Lower East Side, find galleries where you're, you're, you're visiting with artists that are at, you know, at a, pregnant, a pregnant moment. Or you've got to go remine history a little bit, which is something that we have attempted to do over the last, particularly the last five or six years. 
who's been forgotten? Who is really interesting that made beautiful little drawings in 1972 that are really special, but because they weren't the, 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 the sexiest name and they didn't get, get on the top 10 list in the auction catalogs, that have sort of been ignored. And, then, and you can be responsible for rediscovering or helping to rediscover that artist. I actually think that's one of the most interesting ways to begin to, to, um, to collect right now. Because there's, there are so many, in this crazy world right now, where, where, where people are scoffing and disappointed that a, that a Giacometti sculpture only sold for $90 million. I mean, just the, the, the madness of that should, you know, is just that. So I think it's about, let's go remind some territory. Let's go look at an artist who hasn't been looked at in a while. And, and let's reconsider that artist. I, th I think there's ways to do it, but I think it's, it's having both the time and the energy to go out and really mine mine the uh, the territory and ask for help I mean clearly you're here today you must have some relationship to the museum here or you or you wouldn't be here you know ask your curator for advice and talk to him or her about this you know there's no reason to uh, to do it on your own the other thing you can do is the guy to your right four people away is Michael Klein who runs a great gallery in Toronto like a really great gallery and hang out on Saturday afternoons and ask him lots of questions and when I was there last he had a really great plate of macaroons so I mean the whole thing worked but he's really good and he'll he'll talk to you does anybody else have a question no. uh, there's one here and then we'll get to you You'll get a microphone in just a sec. Sorry, I was just interested. Are you? Do you look at works of young, up-and-coming artists? It seems like you, <coughs> your collection is. is we absolutely do. I think it's okay. a. I can't. I can't wait to get back to New York next week and hit the Lower East Side and really do that. And I've got, I've got a young friend in Dallas uh, that likes to partner with me on stuff, and he. I think he, I don't think he ever sleeps because he's either looking at art or he's trying to run his business. I'm not sure whether he's doing a great job of, of that, but he certainly looks at a lot of art. And I get he's 24/7. I'm getting you know images from him. Let's go look at this. Let's go look at this. And this is all very very modestly priced younger artists. You know, the the, the challenge with that right now is sometimes these younger artists are lionized for doing something fresh, which in fact is not so fresh, which has been done 25 or 30 years ago, but they forgot to go back and look at history a little bit. So it's sort of, you know, they're thinking more about their economic future than their commitment to making great art. And I think that, that but to find those that, that, that are is really great fun. And, uh, and we, we are, we're constantly looking, and that is outside of what you would expect our universe to be, but that's sort of like the, that's like having dessert. You, you, you shouldn't have it every day, but you really want it, so you're going to have it. I think there's one last question, and then we can leave. We've uh, just visited the uh, museum at Kleinberg, and we were looking at the art of the influence of Matisse on the Canadian artist Maurice and Lyman. And when we're looking at the art, you could say, oh, we could do that. That's easy. But I think to recognize something at its formative stages, you have to have a very discerning eye. I think 
people are born with great eyes. I think that you can develop it to a point, but the people that I, whom I respect, and they're gallerists, quite frankly, all over, that, you, that, that, that other collectors whom I know saying, if such and such a gallery is showing that work or such and such a dealer is looking at he or she has a great idea. We had, a, had for years in Dallas a wonderful young curator who is now working at an independent space in Miami. And she brought better shows to Dallas than any of our senior curatorial team. She just had the pulse of what was happening next. And, and in Dallas, which was not, at the time when it was not a contemporary mecca at all, she, she did first shows in America, people like Damien Hurst. I mean, it was just, she was just prescient and wonderful. I, I, don't, I think that she was born with that gift. I think she just had it. I, I, I think, but I think you don't have to have the perfect eye. I think you have to look and you have to involve yourself and you have to pay attention. And I think you will make good choices and you'll make good personal choices. At the end of the day, you've got to enjoy this experience. It can't be, this doesn't work vicariously. So I want to just close out by saying that we do what we do in museums and as private collectors, but it's the audience that brings value to the proposition. So I want to say thank you to you for being here today and sharing in this conversation. You bring the AJO alive and we really appreciate that you're here. I want to thank Maxine again for beginning this series and so generously supporting it. And I want to say about the Wachowskis that, you know, at the AGO we talk about generosity and we have a saying that the more we give away, the richer we are. Because as a public institution we want to give away our space and our expertise and our ability to engage people to our audiences to engage them. And you are the gold standard for that. Oh, you, you do something so generous in your community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.